I feel the presence of God at Metropolitan. That's first and foremost. I love the sanctuary and looking up and seeing Jesus looking down at me. Beyond that, I love the people here. There's so many different personalities. And I love being able to serve in the heart of the city. This is the Metropolitan United Methodist Church Podcast. As we get started, will you pray with me? Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, thou who art our strength and redeemer. Amen. How many of you have one of these? I don't think you're being honest. I should see more hands up. Something like 95% of millennials have one of these. It might even be higher. I'm a millennial, so I know. I probably should be more embarrassed to admit that. Um, I was in L.A. uh, last weekend visiting one of my close friends, and I tried to put this away because I wanted to maximize the time we were going to spend together, and of course, you know I couldn't do that. Uh, I don't know L.A. Google Maps tells me how to get around, and I had to call a car when I got to the airport, so I had to use my Lyft app, and then we wanted to go to the best brunch, so I had to use Yelp to tell me where that was. And I'm thinking, how in the world did any of us get get around? How do we do anything before these darn things existed? This, is at the, this was, ultimately, I didn't want it to be, but it, it was at the center of my trip when I was in L.A., and I realized it's at the center of almost all of my days. It's probably at the center of a lot of your days, too, um, and it's, maybe it's concerning, maybe it's frightening. I'm not going to meditate on all of the implications behind technologies taking over of our lives, but um, it's interesting how much my phone takes up my time and how I found myself scrolling this repetitive motion, my left thumb kind of just does this by itself now. I find myself um, gobbling up more and more of the news now um, a days because of my phone. I've got the New York Times, I've got the Washington Post, and uh, it's true our current political moment is a strange time indeed, and regardless of what our political opinions are, we can probably agree that we're consuming a lot more of the news these days. I don't have cable TV at home. My sister would tell um, you that I have what we call hipster TV. Uh, I don't watch cable. Uh, I watch Netflix and HBO Go and YouTube and whatever else is on. So when if I'm going to watch the news that I'm not going to consume on my phone, I do it at the gym. Usually in the morning, usually on the treadmill, and it's usually watching Morning Joe on MSNBC. Now, most cable news I find to be almost wholly unpalatable today. It's hyperpartisan. it's incredibly basic, it's common denominator type clickbait. There's almost no journalistic content, um, and that's just the news I choose to watch. Uh, honestly, I think sometimes the only reason I'm watching the news in the morning anymore is because it gets my heart rate up, and that just kind of helps me <laughs> double the calorie burn I'm going through. It's probably contributing to hypertension too, but you take the good with the bad. I know this is probably how cable news has been for a long time, and especially over the last decade, but it seems especially acute right now. Our current political moment has peaked in this level of polarity and division, and it's being reflected in the amount of arguing and fighting going on as people struggle to make sense of what's happening around us economically and politically and socially. 
this arguing, this division. From kneeling during anthems, to police violence, to jobs, to any topic, my guess is that you have an opinion about one of these things. And if you're like me, it's not just an opinion, it's a strong opinion. It's the right opinion. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Yeah, well, I want to tell you something, and this is evidenced in the scripture that our sister Beverly read for us this morning. Jesus had some opinions, too. Our text demonstrates a pretty great example, in fact, of Jesus getting frustrated and fed up and letting those darn Pharisees have it in the type of argument common to his time. I want to suggest to you this morning that there are things, friends, worth arguing about. But that for us today in our church and in our society, it's so much more about how we argue with one another and what our ultimate motivations are than it is what specific opinions we hold on any single issue. And that properly trained then on the greatest commandments that we are given. Few can do justice to that which our Lord has commanded, that we love our God with our whole heart, and that, out of that love, we also love one another as reflections of the love and grace and forgiveness that our God gives us. Living this way then doesn't obviate the arguments or pacify the disagreements. We are a people of diversity for a reason, but we don't have to succumb and live like the world. We have a kingdom of love, of God's love, that we're invited to live into. And so we may be don't stop arguing and we don't stop the disagreements. I gotta be honest, I'd rather be arguing with you in that kingdom than I would be on the set of Morning Joe. In this morning's text, we read about some of the groups of Jews who did their best during Jesus' time to stymie his ministry in favor of their own interpretations of how best to live in covenant as Israel, as God's chosen people. We hear about the Sadducees and we hear about the Pharisees as two of these groups who come up again and again and who Christians over the centuries have loved to vilify and hate. While you don't need to know exactly who these groups of people are or were and what exactly they believed, I think it is helpful for us to understand the context in which Jesus was willing to publicly engage in argument and debate with them. The Sadducees were a people of power and a people of privilege in Israel's society because their power was based inside the temple. Now remember, the temple was the place where the Jews went to worship. It was the structure by which God mediated God's revelation of God's self to Israel at that time. If there is no temple, there is no Sadducee class. There is no place in which you go to leave offerings. There is no place you go to pray. There is no place you go to be cleansed and purified. The Sadducees were institutionalists who were comfortable in their power and position with the temple, and so they did everything they could to pacify relationships with Rome because they didn't want to trouble the waters that kept them in positions of privilege. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were in much closer touch with the common man. The Pharisees, as a group, came up to power when Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, the first temple was destroyed when the Babylonian Empire came into Israel and took over the place. They enslaved many of the Jews and took them into Assyria and elsewhere, and the first temple was gone. 
Therefore, there was no other priestly class to mediate religion for them, and they had to turn to someone else. These were the Pharisees who came up, who knew everything that could be known about the law, and they said, while there is no temple for you to worship at, we will tell you how best to interpret what God has laid out in the form of law for you to follow. And so, if you were an illiterate adult, like 90% of the adults at the time, the oral traditions of religious practice and interpretation were what folks knew because it's what they heard. And so the Pharisees provided people the opportunity to ground their faith in something more concrete in the absence of a temple. Our passage today happens in the context of two chapters in Matthew where Jesus is engaging this group of people. Now, we don't really hear much about the Sadducees in, in this morning's text, and the reason for that is simple. At the time that Matthew was written, there was no more temple. The second temple, which was constructed before Jesus' birth, was destroyed in the year 70 AD. That's about 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So at the time when the Gospel of Mark and then following the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and many of the Pauline epistles are being written and being handed down, they're not being handed down in light of what we call Second Temple or Restored Judaism because there's no more temple. And therefore, the Sadducees have lost their power. But the Pharisees, they were folks who were rising in power at this time. They were the people who were the chief uh, opponents to this emerging Christian religion, this emerging way, the way of Jesus and the people who were called his followers. So the authors of Matthew, and specifically in this section of the book of Matthew, are focusing their attacks on the Pharisees. And they're putting these words here out of Jesus' mouth to address dominant strains of thought, dominant strains of law, dominant strains of rules. I'm giving you this context because I think sometimes we get lost in the content of what's said of instead of the meaning that's there and the simple fact that the story gets told at all. The Gospels weren't written during Jesus' time. There was no iPhone. There was no FaceTime. There was no Facebook Live to capture what was going on. And so when a story gets told, it's not so much about interpreting it as having literally happened in the first hand. Like so much of Scripture, our text in Matthew today is a poetic example about, of what the community believed and told one another about how Christ lived and what Christ did and said, and most importantly, who Christ was to the community. And so while it's perfectly reasonable to believe, like I do, that Jesus told people all the time what the greatest commandment was, to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul, and then to love your neighbor as yourself as a reflection of the love you have for God. What's more telling in this instance in Matthew is how Jesus says it. He says it in argument. He says it in debate. He says it while he's confronting the powerful, while he's confronting the people who control opinion and who control, for the most part, how the dominant religious class of Jesus' time, the Jews, were mediating and understanding the, their, their, the religion and who God was to them. In verse 34, the Pharisees hear that the Sadducees have already been silenced. That's a little clue for us, right? The Sadducees have been silenced. That's, a, that's our marker that the second temple has already been destroyed. So the Pharisees have emerged now. They've been not only silenced by Jesus, they've been silenced by historical events. We get the sense now that Jesus 
has already maybe been getting the business from many people on many sides. Sensing maybe that they were smarter or more adept at the art of rhetorical challenge, the Pharisees start to lay in. Now, arguments back then aren't like arguments maybe today. Back then they were based on logic and on the rules of fallacy. So you gotta catch your opponent in some swift kind of way of thinking. You gotta catch an inconsistency. You gotta expose the point. So you can't really think of it like Jesus sitting on a morning talk show yelling across the table about the Pharisees' argument simply being fake news. Jesus actually had to construct an argument. And so when the Pharisees tried to get him, he doesn't only answer their question, but he turns the table and he asks them a question. He asks them a question he knows they can't answer without exposing their own lack of belief and without exposing their own lack of honest engagement with the issues of the day. And so in his, as in many of the examples in the Gospels of Mark and Luke and Matthew, the silence of his adversaries, here are the Pharisees, in light of his questions, is our proof that Jesus won the argument. So what do we take away from this engagement of Jesus. He doesn't lose his mind. He doesn't throw a chair. He doesn't start swearing and screaming up and down. But Lance Pape, a theologian from Bright University uh, Divinity School in Texas, says this, it's all too easy to remake Jesus in our own image, picking and choosing from the biblical testimony in order to depict him as a friendly, harmless, mainline person with boundary issues. But if we take Matthew's testimony seriously, we confront the possibility that our Lord discovered that sometimes in this life, there are things worth getting worked up about, things worth arguing about, things that call for those who are able to be both loving and formidable in the cause of righteousness. So in light of Pape's assessment of Jesus' willingness to argue and debate his fellow Jews about their faith and about their understanding of God and God's kingdom, I got to ask you today, when are you going to get worked up about the fact that this world that we live in does not resemble in any way, shape, or form the kingdom of God that Christ died for us to inherit? When are we going to get worked up about the countless issues of injustice that don't just stop coming? From the disparagement of immigrants in a country that was founded by them, to the violence against women in speech and in word and in deed and in act that somehow are normalized at even the highest levels of government in our country? When will we reject the fact that our uh, brothers and sisters of color in this country are more likely to get sick and die than any other race of person? That infant mortality among black women specifically is six times higher than white women in the city of Detroit. That black folks in Detroit are more likely to get HIV and die of AIDS than any other race on this earth. Or that people around us continue to die of violence, violence that can be prevented. Do you need me to go on? Does anyone not watch the news and just see how absolutely decimated and devastated our country has become? If it isn't violence from without, it's violence from within, the violence we impose on each other. How divided and how angry and how hate-filled we've become. How we've surrendered decency and civility and humility. Where is our decency, our civility, our humility? Where is the kingdom of God? 
Teacher, what commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus argued, friends, because he was arguing for something. He was arguing for the kingdom of God, and at the heart of the kingdom of God is love. Love for God ultimately, which is expressed on earth through our relationships with one another, through our love for our neighbor. The commandment to love God is as much an invitation as it is a rule, because the necessary question it demands is how. How are we to love God? Well, we love God by loving one another. Most New Testament scholars agree that Jesus' central message in his ministry during the few years of adult life that he was able to be about it concerned the kingdom of God. He preached about the kingdom of God time and time again. The term shows up in the Gospels more than any other. And while Jesus entrusted the same message to the 12 apostles and to the band of 72, and despite its centrality to his ministry, Jesus never defines it. Instead, he uses parables. We hear him say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like leaven. Jesus' teachings, his parables, his actions, and his commandments are all we have left to understand what he meant. Ken Blue, a theologian, writes the following... As we begin to see the kingdom of God as defined by what Jesus said and did, we discover that Jesus' enemies and friends did not expect too much of this kingdom, but too little. Jesus came not simply to bring political liberation to one nation, but to bring spiritual, physical, and relational liberation to all people. The kingdom of God addresses not only our internal spiritual state, but also our outward physical and social environment. Hear those words, the kingdom of God is here and now. The kingdom of God is inside us and outside us. The kingdom of God is both intangible and physical. The kingdom of God is simultaneously unfolding out in front of us, being created by us, as well as having been in existence from time immemorial. In being told that all the laws, all the rules, all the structures, all the order of our entire system hangs up on the greatest commandment, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're presented with the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God is a kingdom of God's righteous and perfect and unifying love. It is grace-filled. It is refining. It is perfecting. It is for you. It is for me. It is for free. And it's worth getting worked up for. Prince Rainey Rivers writes, when we inherit, or I'm sorry, when we invite hearers to love God as Jesus commands, we must point to the world around us as the concrete, tangible ways where this vision of love can be expressed. Show them what the love of God looks like. Friends, what does the love of God look like to you? Does it look like huge disparities in health and wellness in one race versus another? Does it look like the rounding up and deporting of children to foreign countries simply because they were brought here as babies by their parents seeking a better life? Does it look like nuclear war? Does it look different? Could it look like peace? Could it look like community? Could it look like this place? 
Could it look like this place where concrete efforts are being taken every week to open our doors and to serve a community of folks, some of whom live in the midst of poverty and the disparities of health wrought by their race? Could it look like this place where we celebrate Christ's resurrection every month around a common table and proclaim a common faith and share a common meal? Could it look like this place where we have a gym open to children in our neighborhood, where we have a youth program on the verge of something great? Could it look like this place? Could it look like Metropolitan? If the kingdom of God could look like us, then there's only one question left. When will the kingdom of God look like us? Only when we accept the commandment that Christ gives us to love our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves will we get there. Only when we start getting worked up about the stuff that matters in this kingdom of God's love will this kingdom of God inbreak around us. On my flight back home from L.A., I was, uh, I was on airplane mode, so this thing had absolutely no value to me anymore for a moment, which was kind of nice for four hours or so, being separated from this. Looked out the window at 35,000 feet and I could see the Rockies stretched completely down below. I could look out and I could just see, I don't know what state, Colorado, maybe Utah, just going in every direction. And I realized all of a sudden as I was looking at the horizon that there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I don't know why it dawned on me then, but it, it dawned on me, it's not a brilliant thought. It's just this realization that we all know, but I don't know that we don't say it enough. It's that heaven isn't in the clouds. God's not up in the clouds. The angels aren't up in the clouds. The kingdom of God isn't up in the sky. It's not in the clouds. It's not the pearly gates when you die. It's here. It's right now. We choose to make the kingdom of God around us. We choose if we'll live in the kingdom of God. It's today. It's here. And it's us. And as we get worked up about it, and as we argue about in breaking this kingdom around us, I want to also encourage us to consider that it's also worth hearing from each other and understanding each other and being willing to be argued back at against about how it should be. It's also worth listening to one another when they tell me and they tell us how it is. It's worth seeing someone else's point of view and taking the risk of challenging our own assumptions. Friends, getting worked up together for the sake of the kingdom of God is what we are called to do. And I'm grateful and proud to say that our church is embarking on that anew and, and, and afresh in our steering committee. Together, I know as a committee and as a larger body of Christ, we must commit to work in love and in humility and in respect and in kindness to bring about the kingdom of God's love for the sake of a world that does not know it and that acts like it doesn't want it, but that we know desperately needs it. Metropolitan Church, be the kingdom of God's love with me, with one another, and with our neighbors. For the sake of Jesus Christ and for the love of God who calls us to be one in ministry with each other and, and in all the world. May it be so. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Metro UMC podcast. Please join us for worship at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings or at 5 o'clock on Tuesdays for 5 o'clock rush. You can find more information at MetroUMC.org or on Facebook under Metropolitan United Methodist Church.
Metropolitan United Methodist Church is a biblically-based, multicultural, diverse, Christ-centered congregation where everyone is welcome.